Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Before we start, I just wanted to talk about something, or I guess make an announcement, really. Last episode, I was talking about how hard it is to keep a show like this, a company like this, going financially. And I hate to break the fourth wall like that and kind of let the light in on the magic, so to speak. But I thought it was important to explain why I hadn't been doing any of the heavy lifting thus far on the Charles Dexter Ward story. Anyway, the response from listeners was really encouraging. A lot of you wrote in messages of support and we saw a definite uptick in the number of people pledging monthly donations via the website, which wasn't what I was trying for, but it's always nice, so thank you. The really stunning thing, though, is that we got one particular donation. It was an overseas money transfer from the US, and it's a lot of money or it's a lot of money to us. It means we can keep going for the rest of the year, which is amazing. The money was transferred from a legal firm called Hutchinson and Orm, who are based in Boston. So I've just been on the phone to them, and I've checked that it's okay to give out their name, but I have no way of knowing where the money actually came from, because they won't tell me who their client is. But they told me it's a donation, not a sponsorship or payment in kind or anything like that. I spoke to Simon Orm, the partner in the law firm, and he said that his client was a fan of the show and had been listening last week when I talked about how hard it was to keep the show going. And so this client has put enough money in our account that we can carry on. So if our mysterious benefactor is listening right now, um, thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy the rest of the series and that you feel at the end of it that we spent your money wisely. So I guess we're here for the duration now, all the way to the bitter end. So let's get on with it. This is episode four of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. If you're just joining us, I'd advise you to start at episode one and work your way through. Still here? Okay then. I'm Matthew Hayward, and this is The Mystery Machine. Who is Dr. Allen, Charles? I don't know. Your father tells me you've been seeing a man named Dr. Allen, but your father doesn't know this man either. Is he someone Miss Sayers knows? Because I can't find anyone under that name registered in the area. What kind of doctor is he? He's a scientist. A scientist? We're working on some experiments. What kind of experiments? Dr. Allen worked with my grandfather. This man Kerwin? Yes, I've done some reading of my own on Joseph Kerwin. I'm not sure you should be so quick to claim him as a relative, Charles. Well, you can't choose your family, Dr. Willett. This is one of the handful of recordings we have from Dr. Willett's archive. The notes that accompany this suggest that it was around this time that Willett first tried to have Charles Dexter Ward committed to his care in the asylum. Can we talk about these disturbances in the night, Charles? We can talk about whatever you like, Doctor. Your father is concerned. That statement is always true. He said he heard you arguing with someone in the early hours of this morning. 
Well, I can't imagine who that would have been. He said he heard two voices, raised voices. He stood outside your door and he became convinced that both voices were you. Perhaps it's my father you should be treating as a patient. Who were you talking to, Charles? I was sound asleep. I don't believe Your I father said he sleep, knocked on the door and you answered it fully dressed. Well, really he said don't. you became abusive. Perhaps he was jaw dreaming. is badly bruised this morning. I examined him myself. So was I dreaming? My dreaming right now as I look at the swollen knuckles on your right hand, Charles? So what was going on with Charles Dexter Ward? We think this was all started by Charles's discovery of some written correspondence between Barbara Sayers, the woman who was to become his tutor, and a local cult leader named Joseph Kerwin. Subsequent to that discovery, Charles became convinced that Joseph Kerwin was actually his grandfather. We now know that Charles's grandmother was a woman called Eliza Tillingast. She fell pregnant in England and moved to America to have the baby in 1963. So, if Joseph Kerwin was the father, that means he was in England in 1962. What was he doing here? The amount of silly dabbling in the occult that goes on today scares me. These people think that they're doing something terribly clever and terribly with it, and it's all great fun. And what they don't understand is that they're invoking forces which they can't fathom, and they're making themselves a channel by which those forces can come through into the world. The revival of public interest in witchcraft is one of those curious features of life today. But it's very difficult to get at the truth of what it's all about. On one estimate, there are 30,000 people practicing in witchcraft in this country alone. A more conservative figure would be 8,000. But even so, it's enough to make you think. Are there really dangers involved? Or is it all just a delusion? And if it is just a delusion, why do so many really quite intelligent people half believe in it? Just what has been going on in this country since the last of the witchcraft laws was repealed in 1951? Those were archive clips from a 1971 BBC documentary called The Power of the Witch. The programmes were made in response to growing interest in witchcraft at the time in the UK. We might think of the swinging 60s in terms of music and fashion and a sudden explosion of popular culture, but it also marked a period of sexual liberation the rise of feminism and a cultural undercurrent that rejected social norms and, as seen in a lot of hippie culture, drew its practitioners towards a kind of nostalgia for the rural world. It's really not surprising then that these conditions would prove ripe for a resurgence of paganism and witchcraft. We know that Joseph Kerwin was into this stuff by the time his cult was involved in a shootout with police in Rhode Island in 1980, but it turns out that his interest in it started way earlier, and we can certainly date it to 1957 in the New Forest. I've got a few lines here from the Lymington Gazette, dated November the 2nd, 1957, under the headline, Police Break Up Satanic Halloween Ritual. It reads, Police in Lyndhurst report breaking up a meeting of alleged witches just after midnight on October 31st, that's Halloween, in the forest near Buckler's Hard following complaints from local residents of bonfires, loud chanting and nudity. Several participants were arrested, among them the group's leader, Mr Joseph Kerwin, of No Fixed Abode. 
All were released without charge the following morning. So, there he is. Joseph Kerwin, 1957, The New Forest. The no-fixed-abode bit makes him hard to track down, and there are no more newspaper reports on him from that time. Well, there's been a coven in The New Forest since at least the 1930s. Dr Eleanor Peck is a lecturer in early modern history and the author of several books on the history of witchcraft in Britain and Europe. When I started looking into these new forest witches, I discovered that Dr Peck had written about them. I got in touch and we talked about what Kennedy and I had discovered, and when I mentioned Joseph Kerwin's name, she invited me to her home down in Lewis in Sussex. Gerald Gardner, uh, the guy who styled himself as the originator of the modern Wicca movement, claimed he was admitted to the New Forest Coven in 1938. He says he took part in a ritual there a few years later that successfully halted the German advance through Europe. Oh, is that how it happened? <laughs> well, there's the thing about magic. Post hoc, ergo propter hoc, we did a ritual to stop Hitler. Hitler was stopped, therefore our ritual worked. Well, that and the Allied forces. Yeah, but... Would the Allied forces have prevailed without the new Forest Coven's intervention? I'm going to go with yes. Mm, So would most people. But actually, either position is equally impossible to prove. In 1938, Gerald Gardner, a British occultist and sometime associate of Alistair Crowley, claimed to have been admitted into a secret coven of witches in the New Forest. The leader of the coven was a woman Gardner only referred to as Old Dorothy. There's been a lot of speculation as to who old Dorothy really was, and a few reputations have been ruined over the years as accusations were thrown around in what was a pretty conservative Christian part of the world. Old Dorothy, yeah. For the longest time, people thought it referred to this woman who was a senior figure in the community and a keen member of the local church. Of course, that played into all the conspiracy theories about the establishment dabbling in the black arts and all that. But it's actually more likely that Gardner had something against this woman and was deliberately seeking to damage her reputation. That's kind of a dick move. That's something you notice over and over again within the occult community. There are these guys like Crowley who are basically just into manipulating people. Gerald Gardner actually asked Crowley to join the Wicca movement early on. You know what Crowley said? There's no money in it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. We're never going to find out who old Dorothy really was, or if she even existed. But there's an interesting uh, little nugget there, especially interesting to you if you're looking at Joseph Kerwin. There's one piece of Gardner's correspondence from about 1943 where he refers to old Dorothy as Ipku Aya. Seriously? Yeah. So this is the Mesopotamian sorcerer who Kerwin was obsessed with? Well, they all were. The New Forest People, Jack Parsons, the Process Church of the Final Judgment, Manson. As in Charles Manson? Oh, yeah. Joseph Kerwin was hanging out with Manson and Anton LaVey in California in uh, 67, 68. He dropped out of sight just before the murders, just like he did in New York in 76, before all the Son of Sam killings. Seriously? Oh, you've found a juicy character there but all these guys were deep into the whole Ipkuaya Mesopotamian thing but it never really came out because the second anyone mentions the word Satan that's what the tabloids all seize upon because they didn't realize that not only is Satan not considered to be as all-out evil as the movies would have us believe but he wasn't even a big part of the pantheon for these groups 
but the name is recognisable to Joe Public. It's easier to spell than Ipkuaya. Wow, there's a, there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> Welcome to my career. Going back to the New Forest in the early 60s, though, mm-hmm. Joseph Kerman was still there? Yeah, mid-50s to about 63, 64, he was still there, hanging around within the Wicca movement. The Gardnerians, as they were called, after Gerald Gardner rather dubiously claimed credit for the whole thing. But I don't know that Kerwin was the leader of any particular coven for very long. Wicker covens can be every bit as political and changeable as any other community. Is there anyone still around from that time who might remember him? Well, I found a woman called Amelia Fenner, who's still alive, just. She's not there anymore, though. She lives in a nursing home now, in Barnet, of all places. She loves to talk about the good old days. Though you want to take some of it with a pinch of salt. Most of these people are much better at lying than they are at magic. Oh, my God. Kerwin knew Manson? Oh, she rattled off a whole list of groups that he was involved with. Half of them I've never heard of. But if Kerwin was this kind of guru cult figure in that world and Charles Dexter Ward is already into that stuff and then he finds out Kerwin might be his granddad... <laughs> I'd be like finding out your grandma was borking Jim Morrison. And more than that, you could share DNA with Jim Morrison. And if Kerwin is as strange as he sounds, then maybe Charles Ward is acting weird as a kind of emulation? Yeah, or maybe he's trying to finish the great work, and that turns him a little weird. Great work? That's the thing, apparently. Eleanor Peck was talking about it. These witches and wizards often have these projects they're striving to complete to bring back someone from the dead or raise a demon or whatever. Started to buy into this? Like, if he started to think Ward was onto something? That he really was dangerous? If he killed Ward, maybe. But it's hard to see what Lucy Hawthorne would have to do with any of that. She was related to Ward, but I don't think she was into this stuff. I don't think they knew each other existed. Now, how's it going there? I got nothing. I'm trying to fill in the blanks on Ward what he was doing between getting kicked out of school and getting locked up in the asylum. I've got calls in to the warden of the hospital, some of Willett's colleagues, but no one's getting back to me at the moment. And I'm trying to figure out where all Ward's stuff went. What stuff? Anything. He checked into the psychiatric hospital with just the clothes he was wearing. I checked with the realtor guy, Sylvester Birdwistle. <laughs> Sorry, that never gets old. <laughs> and he said that there was practically nothing of Charles Ward's in the house when they took possession of it. So where's all his stuff? All these occult books he supposedly had. The letters he and Tyler Green found. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm getting nowhere with it, though. I think this week is going to be all you. Well, I have to go and talk to a very old lady. Let's hope she's entertaining. I feel like I'm standing right on the edge of London. Behind me, the suburban streets of Barnet head through into London proper and miles and miles of metropolis. But across the road... From where I'm standing, there's just an old Victorian building that might once have been a manor house or something. And beyond it, there's nothing but fields and trees rolling off into the distance. This is the nursing home where Amelia Fenner, as far as we can tell, the last surviving member of Joseph Kerwin's coven in the New Forest, now lives. She's quite sprightly, considering, certainly compared to a lot of our guests, and... She's all there too, sharp as a tack. Oh. Amy, your visitor is here. Uh, Miss Fenner. It's Amy, love. 
Amy is 85 years old, but as she was quick to point out, she's still in possession of most of her faculties. Hearing's not so bad, considering, and I could still give all these buggers a run for their money on the dance floor. (laughs) (laughs) I'd spoken to Amy briefly on the phone, so she knew why I was here and what I wanted to talk about. She was cagey until the nurse had brought our drinks, but once everyone else was out of earshot, she opened up a bit. I don't mind talking about this now, because there's not many of them left, really, is there? I think you're the last of them. The last you can find, maybe. Or the last who'll own up to it. You think there are others? Now, let's not get ahead of ourselves. I'm 85. I'll start at the beginning and I'll go to the end, or else we'll both get bloody confused, won't we? (laughs) And when she said the beginning, that's exactly what she meant. Amelia Fenner was born in 1933 in Whitechapel. She was evacuated down to Somerset during the Blitz. Her father was in the RAF and he was shot down and killed in the Battle of Britain. Her mother never remarried and died soon after the end of the war. Amelia and her two older sisters finished up their childhood in a children's home. Her sisters both got married and moved away. Amelia realised she preferred the peace and quiet of the countryside to the hustle and bustle of 50s London, so she moved down to Hampshire and got a job in a stables, which is something she'd gained some experience of during her evacuation. It was one of the friends she made there who introduced her to the coven. It was just a bit of a laugh as far as I was concerned. Prancing about in the forest. Silly, isn't it? (laughs) But my friend said they always had booze with them. Other stuff, sometimes. Not like I had anything better to do of an evening. When would this have been? Oh, I suppose 1958, 59, when I first started going. So Joseph Kerwin was... Oh, yes. He was the high priest then. Ah, extraordinary man. In what way? Brilliant. Energetic, inspiring, charismatic. (laughs) Oh, I was so nervous the first time. Like I say, it did all just seem a bit silly. If you can imagine going to church with no idea of what to expect, the prayers, the hymns, the costumes. I suppose all rituals are a bit strange the first time. And there's a stigma to dancing around in the woods, isn't there? Even more of a stigma then with everyone being nude and this being the 1950s. Oh, you were... Oh, completely naked most of the time. It's all about getting closer to nature. I remember Joseph explaining that to me. And that first time, I'd made an absolute pact with myself that I wasn't taking off a stitch. <laughs> I'd heard the stories mainly from my friend who was already involved and she'd said, come along. I remember saying to her, I was going to be wearing my hat and coat and I had no intention of so much as loosening a button. And she laughed when I said that because I suppose she knew the reality of the whole thing. And she was completely right. We got there, drank some of the tea they'd made and then... Joseph approached me and welcomed me as a new initiate. I don't think I even knew what the word meant. And five minutes later, I'm standing there, naked as the day I was born and not a care in the world. (laughs) How did he persuade you? Can you remember? Oh, I don't think it would have mattered what he said. 
It was the tea, dear, you see? Laced with hallucinogenic mushrooms, of course. I can't begin to describe how it feels to be part of a ritual. To be a part of something so much bigger. It's like lightning strikes and it passes through you. You're a conduit for this great power, but, but it doesn't hurt you and it doesn't stop with you. It passes through. But while it's passing, it fills you and enables you and you get this fleeting feeling, the smallest taste of, of what that power feels like, what it would be like to wield it. And then it's gone. Apart from the feelings, did you ever witness anything, I mean, hmm? that you could objectively say was supernatural? If I said yes, would you believe me? I'd believe that you believed it. <laughs> if you only knew. Knew what? You're asking me about a man called Joseph Kerwin. A man you believe was born at a certain time and did these particular things and then died? Well, that is... No, you're speaking of Ipku Aya. But you only see a fraction of his existence in time. The briefest moment when he was a man called Joseph Kerwin. But before that, he was others. And after that... Well, I don't understand it. No, I know, dear. No, it's all right. Was there a woman called Caroline Hughes in the coven at that time? Mm. She might have been with someone called Eliza. Ha! <laughs> Those two! You knew them? <laughs> the posh ones. Oh, we all thought they were just slumming it at first. They showed up after I'd been there a couple of years. Joseph was up and down to London and there was talk he was making friends with the establishment. Witchcraft was becoming very fashionable amongst that lot. Probably they were attracted to all the nudity and sex. <laughs> Your face. <laughs> it was all sex, dear. Sex magic. That's what we were doing in that forest. What did you think? Pointy hats and broomsticks. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I, I didn't... You haven't lived. Anyway, yes, one day Joseph shows up with these two posh London girls, one on each arm. And we all thought he just brought them there to show off that they were... Oh, what do you call it? Um, dilettantes come down for one night cavorting in the forest, then go back to London to tell all their friends in Chelsea or wherever how hedonistic they'd been. <laughs> oh, but we were wrong. Joseph had chosen well. They stuck it out and became his favoured acolytes. What, what does that mean? Well, it means they shagged him a lot, but then so did the brother, so that wasn't necessarily... The brother? Uh, one of them had a brother. I don't remember which one. Was it Eliza? No, I don't remember. Can you remember his name? There were a lot of men. Joseph didn't discriminate when it came to sex. Homosexual magic is very powerful for certain rituals. But the girls you're talking about... They were there for Ipku Aya. Right. To continue the bloodline. Because Ipku Aya was, uh, was possessing Joseph Kerwin. No, not possession. Joseph was the living form of Ipku Aya. 
But the mortal body only lasts so long, so another vessel must always be ready. And the vessel must be of the bloodline. So he was intending to get one of the girls pregnant? Intending? He did. Both of them. (laughs) But something happened, some kind of falling out with the brother... Oh, Joseph had a temper on him, and when he lashed out, didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. One of those girls took a beating, and the brother, um, Jeffrey, that was his name. No, it wasn't. Jeff, Gerald, Godfrey, Godfrey, that was it. That would have kept me awake. Anyway, Godfrey took both of the girls back to London. No more contact with the coven. He must have had some sway, because that's when all the police raids really started in earnest. Joseph disappeared a week or so later. No warning, he just didn't show up one night, and no one ever heard from him again. ah, We struggled on without him, but it was a rudderless ship, and we all ended up going our separate ways. My friend and I left around then, joined up with some Wiccans over near Winchester wasn't the same, but... And you never heard from Joseph Cohen again? No. Rumorous now and again. He was in London, he was in Paris, he'd gone to the Far East, and... And then... Nothing in America when the Joseph Kerwin vessel was destroyed. But not Ipkuaya? No, not as long as the bloodline was intact. And what about Caroline and uh, Liza and Godfrey... No idea. Within the coven, there's no social barriers. There's a hierarchy, but we're all equal in the eyes of the high priest. But outside of that, they're not mixing with the likes of me. (laughs) They'd left that night. I never saw or heard from any of them again. Post-interview notes following my conversation with Amy Fenner. Yes, mate. Oh, just a bourbon on ice, thanks. Large one. Uh, I need to get some legal clarification on the implications of using any of the stuff Amy said about Godfrey Tillinghast. Hey, Matthew. Long time no see, all right? Uh, I don't know your, you guys do. Yeah, you know us. Don't worry about it. Come on. Uh, no, no yeah, sorry. Just have a little chat. Look, guys, whatever you, whatever you do... Let's make that your last episode, shall we? Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.